0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live.
1: Good evening, it's me flying solo this evening. Uh, because Ed is rather busy on educational matters as the primary Head teacher of Chagford Primary. I think he's otherwise engaged in some sort of inspection device that's going on at the moment, so he can't possibly do the radio. Anyway, we're going to talk about science, my route into science, um, my idea for a science book for non scientists, and all that.
0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio.
1: Here I am. I'm solo. It's just me, obviously missing Ed, but I did rather overdose on Ed last week. So so I think our show last week was quite formal and sensible. And um, because we'd spent so much time in each other's company only, only a few hours earlier, we'd spent 24 hours in each other's company. And so I felt that um, the whole chemistry of our show... Um, wasn't quite firing last week i think ed felt the same because we we'd caught up and so we didn't have that that nice kind of oh what ed and toby how they're going to interact this week sort of vibe going on although i know lucy told me told us that it was still a nice show still a good show because lucy is lovely good evening lucy good evening tim and good evening rachel your shout out is coming you'll have to wait just a few minutes rachel you don't have to wait until the end of the show i'm not going to keep you hanging on that long um but um Anyway, so I think we'll just talk about um, what a lovely time I had with Ed. But then he'll be back next week, and we'll do all the sort of Toby and Ed stuff, and we'll talk about our walk because we went for the most magnificent walk um, uh, in Devon, and we had a lovely swim together. It was it was it was just beautiful walking around Heartland, my my favorite part of the northwest Devon coast, and it was a beautiful day last Friday. It was last Friday, and um and we ended up swimming at low tide at Speaks Mill Mouth, which is the highest waterfall on the northwest facing coast, west facing coast between Heartland Point and Bude. So just, it's it's nearly in Cornwall, if you like, um, and if you know that part of the world. And uh, we went for a dip and in the uh, low tide, there's a bit of sand there and uh, it was lovely, it was just lovely. And then um I stayed with Ed and I met Rachel, as we spoke about, obviously, just before show, Rachel uh, Higginson in Exeter, who has just sent a lovely tweet about about me wittering on tonight. I can't promise it's going to be great, but, you know, who knows? Um, Anyway, um, it was lovely to see so much of Ed and he is a wonderful man and he is very busy involved with schooly related stuff so um and lucy's just told us that her half-time highlight was a trip to kew gardens with a lovely twitter friend who lives miles away and i don't often see yeah it's great isn't it meeting people so it's great to meet rachel um at creative hig have i not met before who is you know and it's lovely that's the lovely thing about twitter isn't it when you you meet people who who seem so lovely and fascinating and funny online. Um, And and they are just as wonderful, if not more wonderful in the flesh. And that of course applies to the very wonderful Rachel Ross, who I did meet at New Voices last October. She's great fun. And so we'll come to that because I'm gonna talk about reflections on the Jubilee to begin with, before we get into the science thing. And um, I think, so I, I've, I, I'm just going to talk about Twitter for a bit, and Twitter and the Jubilee, because um, I was down in Devon for the Jubilee, and I probably wouldn't, if I was on my own or with my children, or, or you know, once I've got my new house in late summer, once everything settles down for me personally, um, I probably wouldn't have watched much Jubilee stuff. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a Republican, but I'm not exactly an arch royalist either. But being in my with my mum, my dear old mum. Who's not too great, really, down in down in Devon. Um, she is an arch royalist, and um, it was so it was lovely to sort of sit with her in her kitchen and her really peculiar rituals um, that she has. And multiple machines on at once. She's got sort of, she's got she normally has her sort of either her iPad or her mobile phone playing youtube sort of fake news about harry and megan then she had the tennis the, the the french open tennis on her laptop and then she had the tv on with all the all the jubilee stuff and you've got this it's all this noise and it's just oh it's really hard um but anyway it was lovely to watch trooping the color and the fly past with dear mother and then um locally to go down to my local village in devon langtree um and go down to drink have a few drinks with the local farmers some of them i had not seen for a long 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 time uh, and and watch the lighting of the beacon to be part of that and then friday of course ed and i went for a walk walks so i didn't pay much attention to whatever happened on friday and then the saturday the saturday what was the big event on the saturday it was the platinum party at the palace so again i was watching this with my dear mother and it was pretty awful. I thought not really my kind of thing, but very impressive. I mean, the lighting designers did get a little carried away, didn't they? All those projections onto Buckingham palace i mean incredibly impressive. But anyway, I was on the Twitter during the Platinum Party at the Palace, and so were a great many people. I and mean, it's a bit like Eurovision Night on Twitter, where you suddenly realise that Twitter or or any other online social media—I suppose the same probably applies on. Snapchat or Instagram or, or Facebook, perhaps. But but it was just funny on Twitter. And Rachel was particularly funny. So big shout out to the wonderful Rachel Ross. And big shout out to Chris Moyes as well, um, who was just absolutely, he was hysterical as well. So we were just laughing at Rod Stewart. I think there was, I mean, Rachel's wit is very funny. Um, and there was one about, um, we were talking about, how hardly anyone was singing their own songs and then i think rachel put and and um elton or was it chris i can't remember uh are you going to sing your song your own song or something like that i can't remember exactly anyway i haven't got it all there but it was it was just very funny to enjoy watching this i thought fairly sort of cheesy massively overproduced um but spectacular uh concert um platinum concert but just having bants online and i think i think that's sort of twitter at its best it was um did you actually rachel has just said i loved it did you love the the laughing and the tweeting about it or did you actually genuinely love the concert i mean was it a, a sort of cultural beacon of of the best of british and american music the bands. She loved the bands. Good. I'm glad you clarified that. Um anyway, uh, but it was great. It was that was good. And then on Sunday I stuck around in Devon and watched the watched the pageant with 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 Mother Dearest as well. Um, before driving back in the rain and then sitting in an almighty traffic jam around Stonehenge and not again back till midnight um to Kent. On Monday, on Sunday night. So a bit of a tiring Monday for me. Anyway, there we go. That's Jubilee in Twitter. But because of Twitter being so good and such fun in that sort of frivolous sense, I am going to do, I'm going to try and find, oh, where is it? Audio effects. I'm going to do, I can't remember what audio effect I used to use. We're going to bring back for a week, maybe more. Who knows? I'm going to bring back where is it? uh is it this <laughs> tweet of the week now this is a little indulgent and it's a bit um it's a little bit uh, greedy of me really i suppose oh gosh i haven't even got it here but it's my own tweet so i'm going to talk about a few other tweets as well but um when i was in the in the Uh, I went down to Devon and I took a huge box of books with me I haven't taken books home for the weekend or or for a holiday half term for a long time I try to I stay late and and get it all done at at school now and um, but we had a sort of book look today and I just thought oh yeah and I thought I'll go and get it done so I took these books down and then Ed noticed them when he came, he met me at my mum's before we went out for our walk. He said, what have you got those there for? And um, anyway, so I decided to take a picture of the the box of books. Um, I don't know, about 50 books, I suppose. Um, and um, school books. And I just said, um, I, I've, I've lost the tweet. I haven't bookmarked it. And it's been this all over my Twitter, but I, it's kind of not been there for a while. But it was just about... Um, the uh, my box this my box of year 5 and year 6 science books have had a very sedentary and utterly pointless trip to devon and ed retweeted it tabitha retweeted it and a couple of people retweeted it and it's ended up, it's had 544 likes. Um, it, you know, I don't think it's my best tweet, but it's a very, it's not, there's one or two tweets that have gone a bit more viral than that in the past, but it's bonkers, but it obviously resonated with a lot of people. So I thought I'd mention that. That made me laugh. There's been a few other tweets that I have also caught my attention in the last few days um, as I've been a bit busy on Twitter of late. And uh, I liked Tabitha McIntosh yesterday. Good old Tabitha. There's a lot of stuff about slant. And I get the idea that slant was it sit up and listen and pay attention and eyes tra- track the teacher. I can't remember what it all stands for, to be honest. But it's one of the um, teach like a champion um, techniques, isn't it? And And I think... Obviously, I, I try to do that. If I'm interested in something, I, I I track whoever's speaking, and I look, and I I nod. That's right. The ends nodding, isn't it, and agreeing, and and of course, if you're, you know, it's kind of active, um, or profound kind of listening, isn't it, and, and attention and respect. I get it, but but equally, we can be learning whilst our eyes are drifting out the window and we're daydreaming and all that sort of stuff. So, and the idea that that adults pay attention and sit like that all day in in their jobs or professionally is also somewhat flawed so um i'd rather like tabitha said. if i required every child to carry a miniature pineapple at all times and my outcomes were excellent you'd be measuring the effects of institutional compliance not miniature pineapples um i thought that was a good tweet i thought it was quite entertaining she had quite like a long conversation with james hanscom about it all um and and that's something else I stumbled across today, nothing to do with teaching. Um I which I, I like that. I think I think I like the bits on Twitter that aren't really much to do with teaching, really, the silly bits of fun. Um and Adam Hills, uh the comedian, but I love Twitter, and he's sort of screenshotted a tweet by someone called Bob Servant, um, <laughs> who said thirty three years ago today, over a few cans of Kestrel at gallery services, I said to the Bangles, swap bin man for Egyptian, and you've got a hit, the rest is history. And then Susanna Hoffs, the lead singer of the Bangles, um, who was a very important figure in my just about pre-adolescent childhood anyway, but let's not go there. Um, She's actually replied to it, Susanna Hoffs, um, and replied to Bob Servants, who said, can't say I remember this, but I'll take your word. Um, (laughs) Just little things like that entertain me. and. In tribute to Ed, who is not with us this evening, I am going to read a poem that he sent me because he visited Rosemore Gardens, which is a a RHS garden near to um, my mother's house in Torrington, Great Torrington, North Devon. It's an amazing garden. It's expanded massively about 30 years ago, I think they expanded it. um, And it's one of the most beautiful gardens you can visit. And he went there, I think for the first time, and he, there's a little sort of thatch cottage, and I thought i recognised the poem. And so Ed sometimes reads out a poem on here. So I'm going to read you out a poem in tribute to my beloved Devon. Uh, here we go. Old Cob Wall. Old Cob Wall. Oh, gosh, I need to expand it a bit more. I can't read it. Here we go. Old Cob Wall have fell at last. Us knowed he might a good while past. Great grandad he built thicky wall with maiden earth and oaten straw. He built it in the good old way, and there he's stood until today. But wind and rain and frost and snow have all combined to lay in low. Us propped him up with stones and wood. Us done our best, but twarn't no good. He gave a bit, he gave a bit, and then a lot. And at the finish, down he squat. And now, since Barnes has got to be, us'll build another stead of E. But not the same he was afore, because no one builds cob walls no more. There we go. Um, Anyway, everybody, let's talk about something educationally. So um, I think Ed and I are going to have lots of stuff to talk about over the next few weeks. Um, Very tenuously connected to teaching. Um, We're going to talk about walks and we're going to talk about the summer term, the second half of the summer term. We're going to talk about. Uh, you know, when to, what to, when's the best time? When does the best classroom learning happen? Um, we'll probably discount the exam years uh, of, of year 11 and year 13. But but for general other years, um, when does the best classroom learning happen? Does it happen in, in September, the start of the school year, or in the deep, dark days of winter in January and the start of the spring? Easter or winter or second winter or spring term, whatever you call it. Um, or is it in April or is it now in June and July? I and so we'll talk about the kind of madness of the the this this final push for our very, very privileged summer long summer holiday that we all have in a few weeks' time. Um so we're gonna talk about that. And I'd like us to talk about festivals as the build-up to the two-year delayed. 50th anniversary of Glastonbury Festival. It's actually obviously the 52nd anniversary. So I think we'll have some sort of chats about festivals and music festivals and all that sort of stuff. But today, um, as it's just me on my own, I'm gonna do something science-y. Now I know Ed and I spoke about science a little while ago, but we spoke a bit more about science curriculum. We spoke a bit more about um spoke a bit more about sort of science curriculum and some of my rather idealistic utopian sort of uh what's the word edutopian ideas about what science should be like at school we're not going to talk about that i'm not going to talk about that i'm going to talk about um really first of all my journey into science and why i have slightly kind of different views about what science should be like in education, and then a bit about the, maybe the book that I'm thinking of writing about it that no one will read and probably never get published, but you know, I'll probably still write it anyway. Um, um. So, and why am I talking about this? Well, some of you will know, I know Lucy does, because she's a very dedicated reader of, of my, my rambling stuff. I, I'm not really posting it via my blog site at the moment. I might have to go a bit bit private at some point, I think, um, on, on a private sort of DM posting or something. But uh, I'm writing a a kind of set of memories um, called From Fertilisation to 50, ahead of my 50th birthday on August the 24th. So I'm writing a chapter Um, or an episode for every year of my life so the first sort of four years was about mum and dad and and the the family home stuff that I, I couldn't actually remember back then but you know the sort of the backdrop to me and uh but now I'm writing a sort of a key memory or event or series of events not it's not so it is a biography obviously an autobiography but it's not it's not kind of covering everything it's covering certain aspects of of things and there's been some intensely personal stuff and I i i'm a very reflective person um you could say i'm a egocentric narcissist I, I certainly have an element of that in me um i also like writing and i think i probably write at my best when i'm writing sort of psychologically and reflectively about myself or about sort of experiences that i've had um i am trying at times to to write fiction but i think i need to you know that takes a lot of practice and and um Anyway, so, but I'm writing, I'm really enjoying writing it. And I think one of the things that's quite interesting is it, you know, to try and work out what it is that makes us who we are. And of course we accumulate, don't we, over, over a great many years. And our, our 50 or our, or our 58 or our, or our 45 or our 32 is, is very different to our 15, to our five, to our 12, to our 19, to our 26 or whatever. And, and um, it depends on, there are a whole number of factors that kind of make us who we are and experiences. But of course, the, the genetic template that, that we're kind of born with as well is, is a pretty huge factor and how that, that genetic template interacts with this environment. So one of the things I've reflected on is that I've never, I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. Um, it, life just sort of happens. It's a journey. And, and I think an important, determinant in me becoming a scientist and now a science teacher was dad's death when I was 16, because he died, he was ill for a couple of years and it was cancer and it was slow and, and painful, but I didn't really understand it, you know, and I didn't, you know, I suppose, but because of him dying at home and being at home in his, in his bed for quite a long time in his last few weeks, um, I had a very romantic notion about being a sort of nineteen fifties style g p general practitioner and and so that's what you know made me want to become a medic, which i haven't become uh and that's probably what made me choose exclusively science a levels and you know i i so i I always kind of enjoyed chemistry anyway. I, I didn't love it, but I, I, I was quite naturally, it came to me naturally for some reason. Um, so I chose chemistry A-level, obviously chose biology A-level if I was going to consider medicine, and um that was all right as well. Um, and then I didn't actually want to do maths A-level. I wanted to do geography, but I couldn't do geography and chemistry on my timetable at school. So, you know, I just did maths. I'd got an A a couple of terms early at GCSE, just a few couple of months after dad had died with no revision so I thought I was some kind of mathematical genius and then I stumbled across projectiles and applied maths at A level and really did not like it at all so I flunked my maths A level um, and the biology wasn't quite as good as it could have been and so medical school wasn't going to happen which I think is a good thing because quite a few people probably would have been severely injured or died if um, the my biology a-level rat dissection was extrapolated so but I was locked in I had I had you know we we narrowed too early I think in this country uh, I think we are encouraged to go down either a sciency or a non-sciencey path you know if you, if you want to do the sciences they say oh you've got to you can't just do one science at a level you know you've got to either couple biology and chemistry or chemistry and physics or physics and further maths and maths um and you know you and so which then if you're only doing three and they're pretty meaty aren't they so you know you're only doing three then that kind of locks you out of of a really broad thing so i think in principle i'm a bit more of a fan of the the kind of ib approach where you do three three majors and three minors, don't you? And you you kind of keep a greater variety of things going um, for longer. If you are of an academic mind, I'm I'm not suggesting that everyone studies deep academically subjects until they're 18. But um, those of an academic bent, I think, obviously, would probably benefit from a broader palette, I would say, and not killing off the arts or killing off the sciences too soon. Anyway, so I ended up with those three not particularly spectacular A-levels, and I thought, oh, I'm not going to retake any. So I just fell into a chemistry degree. At um, it wasn't a chemistry degree because I was brought up to think that, or well, I don't know. I, I I suppose I thought as well that science were, that scientists were all nerds, and I was far too verbose and too much of a communicator to be a scientist. And and that was sort of perhaps brainwashed into me by by certain members of my family, maybe. Um, and so I chose to do chemistry with business degree. it was actually so sixty percent chemistry it wasn't a combined degree it was it was dominated by chemistry um, applied chemistry with business administration at Kingston Polytechnic in 1991 and just went through clearing um well, i didn't even go through clearing i don't think I just think I'd kind of basically turned up pretty much and um just fell onto that by accident i quickly realized that the business stuff was not for me i was not interested in it was too hollow it was too you know i know that deep sort of macroeconomics and and business at a very high level and and running your own company can be a pretty intense and a pretty stressful thing but there was a lot of sort of stuff on there that i just felt oh this is kind of intuitive and obvious and and there wasn't enough meat conversely on the science bits on the chemistry bits there's perhaps too much meat and and that's the thing about the sciences at university and i suspect this is still true is that science is broadly speaking very very factual and and conceptual and illustrative right until the end of degree level so i don't personally that's controversial i'm sorry teachers who are listening but i don't think Someone with a chemistry degree, or a physics degree, or a biology degree—just an undergrad, you know, a, a straight straight BSc, bachelor's degree—can um, really describe themselves as an expert in those subjects, um, because you know you're not you're not really trying anything new out. You're just learning uh, theories and concepts and practical skills and practical processes that have been carried out a great many times before. And so I liked it, but I didn't love it. Um, also, I escaped from sort of, you know, a di- ridiculously posh world down in Devon, and a privileged private school education, uh, where which wasn't a very academic school, but I always felt a bit of a chip on my shoulder that I probably needed to be somewhere a bit more academic and la, 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 And so I sort of drank a lot and messed around a lot and escaped the, the distress and, and um, bereavement and, and stuff of my, my teens. So my focus wasn't really on my studies in my first two years, but somehow my verbosity and my charm landed me in an interview with Smith Klein Beecham, which was, is now GlaxoSmithKline on a small site down near Tunbridge in Kent. And, I went to work there as an undergraduate for a year in this is September 1993 and 1994. And this is the memory, the episode that I'm writing in the From Fertilisation to 50 50 at the moment. And its title is uh, The Accidental Scientist. So having studied chemistry and biology A-level, uh, we were the cultural beacon, Toby. I'm just fooling through what's on here. Um, and um, I think, um, sorry, big yourself up, Tim. saying. What's, I don't know, that's reacting to something I said earlier on. I'm not, I've not got to sound. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, I think that... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I've lost my train of thought just reading reading some of the comments online. Pause. I'm gonna pause for a sip of hot chocolate. Um, I'm not on the on the whiskey or the wine tonight. Being sensible, busy, busy days ahead. Oh. Anyway, uh, I think that I, you know, I kind of enjoyed science and I liked it, but I didn't like just having to learn all this stuff. And so when I turned up at Smith Cline Beacham in September. Nineteen ninety-three, I suddenly first of all, I, first thing I realised that scientists aren't all geeks and nerds and and people who have got sort of social ineptitude. That's that's not true. It was a very young site. There were a lot, quite a lot of other students there. Um, previous years' students overlapped with us for a couple of weeks, and there were eight of us, and there were only about a hundred people on the site altogether. Undergraduate students across across the site, and so it was quite quite, and there were quite a lot of fresh. PhD students, relatively new sort of postgrads and postdocs on site, and so I, I sort of really enjoyed the, the social side; was good, uh, but also I was doing science. So I worked in the mass spectrometry department. Mass spectrometry is an analytical chemistry technique which really, uh, you know, it identifies the the mass of of ions and um, IOMS. Uh, charged charged particles um depending on the the relative molecular mass of of a of a charged molecule molecular ion um and you can characterize so what what has been perhaps made in a chemical reaction produced in a chemical reaction uh using that and other techniques as well and so it was very it was very analytical i wasn't doing reaction chemistry but i was working closely with a lot of organic chemists who were doing um, reactions, chemical reactions, and synthesis in proper normal kind of chemistry labs. Um, organic synthesis—that's carbon-based chemistry for those of you who are not chemists. Um, and um, it was brand new lab. It was carpeted um, because the mass spectrometers—the two mass spectrometers were in there. Huge, great machines um, with vacuum pumps. Quite noisy. The vacuum pumps are constantly whirring to kind of draw a vacuum um, inside the instrument and very very low sample sizes were used so there was not much sort of mess in a, in a mass spectrometry lab um but quite a lot of background noise so they'd fitted a carpet in the lab to, to 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 absorb soak up some of the sound so so that was quite interesting so it was my job as the as the um lackey as the undergraduate student in that lab um to Hoover the lab every Friday afternoon and my boss the late great my supervisor the late great Duncan Bryant he was a brilliant brilliant scientist he was he was only seven years older than me um so i was 21 at the time and he was in his late 20s he'd done two years postdoctoral research in america the university of baltimore and um he uh, had done his phd through the open university before that um and started at imperial i think and then his Supervisor moved his PhD supervisor moved to to the Open University of Milton Keynes. And um and then he was an imperial graduate. But he was just the most fascinating character. Tragically, he died before he was ooh, he died about 40. Yeah, I was in my early 30s. He was a heart heart condition. And so there's a the Royal Society of Chemistry have got a molecular spectroscopy award, a molecular spectroscopy award named after Duncan Bryant. The, uh I think, and he was he was formidable scientist, but he was one of those great sort of quirky intellectuals um he We used to do a pub quiz at a pub in in Tunbridge called the Cardinals error, and it was just a, you know it was quite a quite an intellectual sort of pub quiz He was sort of you know sort of stephen fry like character didn't look like Stephen Fry or sound like Stephen Fry, but he just knew an awful lot about an awful lot of things, and he wasn't it wasn't just locked in his scientific world he, he knew an awful lot about all sort of classical music he introduced me to sibelius and shostakovich but he also loved dub reggae and queen and um who was that brilliant comedian um hello john got a new motor the the um alexis sale he used to do brilliant alexis sale impression um and he was just he was just a very interesting guy and very very bright and he brought science alive for me so it was no teacher it was no university lecturer um it was um a a, and he had only been working there for about a year because after his after his postdoctoral stuff so um and he wasn't uncommon actually there was a lot of very very bright scientists some of them have gone on so one of duncan's kind of bosses a guy called mike webb went on to be head of uh chemical development, which is quite a large chunk of of, of pharmaceutical research at Glaxo GlaxoSmithKline in Stevenage. And then Dave Lathbury, um, one of the uh, organic chemists who I worked with, he went on to become pretty senior in Astra before it merged with AstraZeneca. And then Dave Ennis, who is a very young organic chemist, is now head of chemical development AstraZeneca up in Macclesfield. And I got to work with all these people when they were in their sort of late 20s early 30s and I was an impressionable 21 year old sort of bit of a posh twat really for want of a better term but also um you know quite you know not you know a bit wide-eyed 21 year old and it was it was just it just brought science alive you know you were were working um (laughs) and and you were kind of working uh you know with just people and solving problems and and you know it was it was fun it was a great place and it suddenly made me think I am a scientist so it's when I decided that I am a scientist um because I was doing science I got to do a project a research project with Duncan which we published which we you know he later then published and so my name was on the on the paper that he wrote um based on kind of some of the work we did together um, any chemists listening, we were looking at exchanging hy- hydrogen deuterium exchange in an iron spray that's an atmospheric pressure ionization. So we, what we were doing was we were looking at peptides and proteins, which have got lots of hydrogens on them. Some of the hydrogen atoms in um, molecules, organic molecules. Um, and and peptides and proteins have a lot of what we call labile hydrogens that's hydrogens that can be you know react quite easily and be lost and so if you introduce deuterium which is an isotope of of hydrogen with a larger mass um so you it's got it's got extra neutrons in it so or an extra neutron in it so that you kind of get a different um mass on your mass spectrometer and you can then work out um in in a denatured that's an unfolded protein or a, or a or a native protein which is kind of in its natural kind of folded arrangement um you could work out how many protein how many um labile hydrogens in there which is kind of from a kind of stability a physical stability or a chemical stability thing so it was it was just it was just fascinating and i got to do that and that that inspired my dissertation in my final year and so i just thought by the end of the year um having had a very great social year as well as learning science, I thought I am a scientist and I'm going to become a scientist. So I went back and actually did some work at university. And at that point, um, I went back and did some work at university my final year and then graduated. And I will give a very brief summary after the news on my work at zeneca and pfizer and then i'm going to talk to you about my book idea and why i think this matters and and why how it affects my perspective on teaching science and why i don't currently choose to teach gcse or a level chemistry Um, we'll come to that in a moment thank you for listening to my diatribe thank you for staying with with me um you are lovely people um and i really we really appreciate ed and i are loyal and dedicated listeners i think caroline that's caroline keep isn't it ka 2081 i think and tim and lucy and rachel it's lovely to have you here um and uh, lovely to all those who are listening back. I know Richard Newbold will be listening back and Create and Rachel Higginson will be listening back and quite a few other people. So thank you. But it is my duty as a um, Teachers Talk Radio DJ for um, Teachers Talk Radio to play you the adverts and the news and then the tech update. This is going to last about seven minutes. Please come back in seven minutes or don't go away for another 18 or so minutes of my verbosity. Thank you very much. Back soon.
0: This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslacgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development
2: pounds in bursary terms and conditions apply find out more at stevewoods.co.uk
3: if you're listening to this then we know we share one thing in common a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves that's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care we need people like you to help us achieve even more with us you'll be given all the resources and support you need offered a clear path to career progression and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers, and be part of our future.
0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
3: report in The Independent, schools have begun giving free breakfast to all students sitting exams in an effort to support the rising numbers of families struggling with the cost of living crisis. Head teachers have said that to ensure that no one falls through the cracks, they have decided for the first time to offer free breakfast to pupils taking exams. Pep Delazio, head teacher of a secondary school in Sheffield, said We have gone over and above this year. We call it a warm-up, and it is just literally preparing for the exam. So we know they're good to go before the papers are out and before they go into the exam hall. A government spokesperson said, a nutritious breakfast at the start of the day can help a pupil's attainment and behaviour. Our national school breakfast programme backed by up to £24 million for two years is helping children in disadvantaged areas start the day with a healthy meal. We encourage all schools to use their increased core schools and recovery funding to help children and young people according to their needs, including with breakfast clubs. In Scotland, the EIS union, which represents around 80% of Scotland's teaching professionals, is hosting its AGM this week, with the recently launched Pay Attention campaign, which calls for a 10% pay rise for teachers amid the cost of living crisis taking centre stage. A rally is expected to take place on Saturday afternoon as part of the Pay Increase campaign. EIS General Secretary Larry Flanagan said, Now in its 175th year the EIS is the largest teaching union in Scotland the oldest national organisation of this type in the world. The EIS AGM is one of the key events in the calendar of Scottish education and always sparks considerable debate on the issues facing our education system. This year's event is the first physical AGM that the EIS has held for three years as a consequence of the Covid pandemic. Following two years of online meetings, our members will be looking forward to reacquainting themselves with colleagues in person and engaging in lively debates on the key issues facing Scottish education. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
0: This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio.
2: Hello! We all buy a lot of stuff online it's easier more convenient but finding the best price can be difficult this week let's talk about comparing prices and are reduced prices really a bargain without boring you with the law on price dropping basically shops have to have had a product on sale at a higher price for a substantial time in the past six months to allow them to claim a price drop if you research this you'll see a lot of hits on the 28 day rule 28 consecutive days being considered a substantial amount of time. If you're shopping on site like Amazon, for instance, there's a website that will show you the past sale prices of a product. It's called Camel Camel Camel. That's three camels with no spaces. You can even set up a free account to send you a notification when a price drops. If you're shopping elsewhere, there's lots of price comparison sites around to help you find the best price. A simple search for price comparison will give you a huge list. My advice is find one you understand and trust and start saving. Do you have a favorite price comparison website? Why not get in touch at the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed? Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute
0: Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello and back in the
1: room. Um, good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome back from the adverts and the news and the tech update. Always love the tech update. I yes, I'm very useful. Um. Anyway, um. Right. So I'm not going to. I've been a bit indulgent so far. So I'm not going to go into great detail. But I think the point of my journey through science. Um. So then, after graduating, I. I um, spent six years working for Zeneca Agrochemicals which was the sort of division of AstraZeneca um, and then it's sort of separated and da-da-da-da. anyway um, and then moved to Pfizer um, for 10 years and um, they were much the same as Smith Glen Beach Well, sort of different the, the, the Zeneca Agrochemicals was much more of an applied I worked on a manufacturing site so it was much larger scale and it was more formulation science more physical chemistry sort of uh, less analytical, not working so closely with the um, organic. So I wasn't, I wasn't really connected to the molecule. I was more connected to the final product that the molecule was kind of, which was crystallized in into crystals, um, small small crystals, um, and then and then um, formulated uh, into a product. Uh, and that the same sort of thing that I did at Pfizer was working on inhalation technology. So so formulating converting drug substance very, very finely micronized powder into dry powder inhalers by blending with lactose and and studying the particle properties. Um and then I got more into and I did a bit of work on controlled release technology at Pfizer as well. Um on we were trying to come up with a uh, a longer acting version of Viagra. So Viagra is a bit like paracetamol. You take Viagra and you you pop it in your your mouth and um It works within a sort of about twenty minutes. I've never tried it myself, um, but um, you know, it sort of you know gets into the blood and 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 then does the job. Whereas we were, it it doesn't have a very long duration of action, so um, it fades away. Whereas some of the other competitors to Viagra on the market, slightly longer acting. I think there's Eli Lilly had one called Cialis, which which just lasted a bit longer, kept going a bit longer, and then um, I think Glaxo had one called levitra or have one called levitra as well but then so we were trying to kind of came up with this idea of dual release viagra um (laughs) it's a very dodgy name isn't it dual release viagra anyway um but basically it was a kind of controlled release technology in lots of little coated capsules and had coated particles microparticles in inside a capsule some had a sort of polymer coat on that that sort of swelled up over a long period of time and and let the 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 drug um sort of dissolve and diffuse gradually so the idea was you were supposed to get that sort of immediate release dose that immediate release hit um in in perhaps the evening before you went to sleep and then about six or seven or eight hours later you're supposed to get another another hit um but we couldn't get the pharmacokinetics that's the kind of you know the balance of the 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 medicine concentration in the blood and and you know with all the sort of receptors and whatever however it all works we couldn't get that to work so it never actually happened um anyway i worked on all these different sort of things and um you know it, it, but but what i learned as a scientist working in the industry is that yeah and i'd love to know this is is how much i really needed to know of the sort of school and undergraduate stuff because obviously when you become a specialist scientist you're working in a very narrow field and scientists and and any form of expert in any anything um is really a um you know more and more about less and less don't you so so you know i i I can tell you an awful lot about you know the properties of amorphous and and semi-crystalline powders I can tell you an awful lot about mass spectrometry or differential scanning calorimetry or powder X-ray diffraction and um and and sort of a lot of those characterization techniques. I could I uh, and, and you should know more but again. for those of you chemists listening all the all the transition metals vanadium and chromium chemistry is pretty interesting because of all the all the different colors the different oxidation states of the electrons but but really i you know you become interested in what you're doing don't you you become interested in what you know lots about even if you you know at face value you may not think oh that's not doesn't sound very interesting but then the more you do it you know characterizing these things and learning lots about it but for me i have always been i suppose quite a quick thinker and a quick talker and i've always been quite good at seeking out people who know more than me so so if i needed to sort of solve a problem you know there was always someone down the corridor who'd been there and done it and you're just going to have a conversation with them or or you know you could kind of go and ask someone you you know which what journal articles should i read to try and understand this more um and it was much more collaborative and, and discussion based. And, and just you sort of learn by symbiosis, just by being around people who who know kind of how to solve problems and stuff. And so I'm not sure about all this base knowledge. You know, it, you know, I was working in a pretty highfalutin and bright environment. Not everyone's deeply intellectual though. Some people know a, an awful lot about their thing, but know very little about anything else and And I think that I, I sort of get confused about the science curriculum of why we try to teach everyone a little bit of fundamental chemistry and a little bit of fundamental physics and a little bit of fundamental biology, it really is a pretty diluted and testable way. It's easily testable. It's designed to be easily and reproducibly testable at GCSE and at A level and perhaps even at degree level. And, and you know, I don't know if it's, if it's that base knowledge that it makes you a good scientist. And that's what i I've kind of always think about really and and so you know we seem to be trying to give a hundred percent of the population the opportunity to become a scientist or an engineer or a doctor or or a vet or 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 whatever when you know it's really controversial what I'm about to say but but when clearly people's cognitive abilities you know if you think of cat test scores or or verbal reasoning non verbal reasoning sort of scores if you've got a relatively low score in those areas, your brain's just not going to compute the information, not going to be able to, to do that sort of stuff, to do that sort of job. Now there are jobs in science for everybody because some of them aren't deep thinking or analytical, um, problem solving e mathsy things. You know, there's some, there's a lot of practical jobs. There's a lot of technician roles. There's a lot of, of, um, support services, um, and 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 more sort of mechanical and and manual sort of dexterity and manually skilled things, which which you can you can become you can do, and you can learn that stuff. And of course, the other thing is, if you find GCSE maths or GCSE science a real drag, you know, when you're 25 or 30, and you you know you you kind of fall into an apprenticeship, you know, a little bit later in life, or you you know are working somewhere. And you realize oh well actually i need to understand that then you can go back and do your your gcse maths or your or your base level science or you could have a little tutorial in it and, and i think we learn stuff much quicker when we know we need to learn it than than when we do in our in anyway so i have veered into curriculum now which is not what i wanted to do so i just wanted to say a bit about the idea of my my book really is that since i've been teaching Science. I teach I teach younger children. So I teach in what is essentially a middle school, but it is a private school. It's an independent prep school. So in terms of the age of children. So I teach year five, so nine year olds through to year eight. So nine to thirteen year olds. And um I because I've been in industry for so long, um, I'm just I think our science curriculum is too fundamental too soon for too many. And and although i know I, I greatly respect some of the the science teachers i know and so who listen to hear and and you know we do need people teaching the chemists of the future and the doctors of the future and and firing them up and enthusing them um but equally we put a lot of people on that treadmill and they fall off it you know only 6% of all gcse students go on to study a level chemistry and only 0.5% of GCSE students go on to study some sort of chemistry-based degree and yet everybody learns a bit about the periodic table and a bit about the structure of the atom and a little bit about covalent bonding. Yes I know a few people do foundation science GCSE which is really diluted but then foundation GCSE science is really really diluted fundamentals rather than sort of practical applications or or real life scenarios so but my what i'm thinking about this book that i'm writing that i've started i'm I'm not sure the title of it but really there are so many textbooks on science and so many curriculum materials you know right from key stage two sort of cgp books um through um all the cgp books that you have all the way through um uh, secondary school, plus all the different textbooks, whether you you know um, that that you can get science textbooks, you know, for, for whether it's for A-level or for GCSE or for Key Stage 3. Um, there's loads and loads of those sort of textbooks around. And then if you go into a bookshop, if you go into a Waterstones or an independent bookshop or whatever your local bookshop is, there are loads and loads of sort of people who are interested in science, science books. So there's loads of science encyclopedias, you know, DK, the, the a pretty good publisher. I think they do some great books, you know, on, on, on science and, and all sorts of other things. Um, you know, so science encyclopedias, there's loads of books on space, really engaging books on space, or on dinosaurs and fossils and, and, and um, the human body. And, you know, designed for, for incurious children um, who are interested in these things, uh, also designed for aunts and uncles and grandparents who have no idea what to get their younger, young, you know, sort of, um, your know, grandchildren or nephews and nieces or or even children for, for Christmas, and they oh, I'll buy them a science book and it'll sit on the shelf and it won't get used. So there's all that. And then for adults, there's loads of popular science books. So you can buy, there's, and many of them are brilliant. Most of them are brilliant, you know, fascinating. So you can buy books on science about about many things but then i've got sitting in front of me and i have read from this before and um, but it's just a new paragraph so robin ince i haven't i haven't read the whole book yet robin ince who does the infinite monkey cage with brian cox um and you know he's a comedian originally and he didn't like science at school he was put off by all the bunsen burner stuff he was put off by all the double physics on a friday afternoon stuff as i was i was kind of put off physics at school as well but he's talking about here carlo ravelli um who is founder of the loop quantum gravity theory and a writer of very beautiful books on physics, struggled with the tedium of some of his science education, but he was able to see beyond it. As in, he writes in his book, Helgoland, what attracted me to physics was that beyond the deadly boredom of the subject taught in high school, behind all the stupidity of all those exercises with springs, levers and rolling balls, there was a genuine curiosity to understand the nature of reality. And I think... I think that's what I know from a lot of the scientists I worked with that they didn't love science at school. A lot of them they loved history or or maths or or English or drama, you know, and and I know that the job of school and the job of the school science curriculum is not to make the scientists of the future. You know, there might be some foundations there, um, but it's the job to sort of teach some cultural awareness of science. But I think there's a gap. I think there's a gap in science books. So you've got books about science, science encyclopedias for curious, enthusiastic children. You've got a whole you know, load of nonfiction books on, on popular science, of every aspect of science you could wish to read about. You've got um, all these textbooks and all these curriculum materials and now uh, workbooks and so forth and, and booklets and things in schools. Um, but what you don't have, I think, is the sort of non-science, a sort of science book for non-scientists or for people who aren't interested in science. Um, because science is immensely important to all of us or scientific literacy is immensely important to us. So so my book idea is, you know, I'm not sure it's the best title. I sort of... For
0: non-scientists. Or, um, you know, my... But for me, graduate degree beyond,
1: a you know, applying it and understanding and doing science, knowing a bit about it, that is.
0: Um, who don't have a science background, who perhaps
1: haven't studied science beyond GCSE, and perhaps didn't love it or weren't great at it then. Um, also for key stage three teachers, but also for children in sixth forms and and in as undergraduates in the arts or in humanities who who aren't really interested in science or being put off science at school. Um, and and the sort of ideas I've got to put in it the, the introduction. Is, is, you know, the first part of the introduction is really the science paradox about how how we spend a lot of time sexing science and making it really exciting and telling children it's wonderful and putting on exciting science shows and, and space is amazing. And most children at primary school, when they go to primary school, perhaps when they go to year seven in their secondary school, find it quite exciting and it's made a bit too exciting. And then we start thinking chemistry is all about explosions and it really... Uh, generally um and then we go but now there's this really meaty curriculum you've got to learn all of it and and it it's sort of it's weird so I want to sort of talk about science of how how we perhaps big it up and overexcite and try to make it a bit sexier than it really is and then ruin it by packing the curriculum with too much content I want to talk about the the kind of culture and this whole cultural capital thing and curiosity, which universal fan. I think there was a lot of it. That's not quite right, but that whole sort of, you know, a lot of children and a lot of adults are really curious and really interested in how things work and go, well, no, you can't ask that question yet because you've got to learn the fundamentals. And this is our learning objective for today. And these are our learning objectives for the term. And this is in the GCSE specification. And that little bit of curiosity, curiosity you've got about that, we'll just have to park that for a while. And maybe we'll talk about it in an end of term lesson or something. And so that sort of dichotomy that you've got between this, this cultural capital thing versus just exploring curiosity and exploring this world and this around us and um, i also think that we're a bit hung up on chemistry physics and biology uh yes those are the four three main disciplines in science but actually there are in my opinion four ways of being a scientist there's theoretical scientists there's investigative scientists there's analytical scientists and there's practical scientists and the sort of people who make great practical scientists may not be great at learning and understanding all the theory and concepts and the sort of people who are very analytical and can interpret data and make I mean the basic
0: and designing experiments but it could school we focus on
1: the theory all the time that you know, not all scientists have to have deep knowledge you know as long as someone in the work group has um you know i think i think um you know who to go and ask you know I, I think that's the important thing is knowing everything is not important but knowing who to ask and who to trust when you need to find something out is is an important part of of knowledge and understanding a subject knowing who the real experts are versus the blaggers and um so forth so and then i've got my four overrunning here uh Based on my six themes that I run through year seven and eight. What's the next one? Discovery and ideas. Earth and sustainability. um, Industry and invention. Home and the built environment. And innovation and the future. And I kind of hook... The whole Key Stage three curriculum to those six themes, um, uh, you know the different chemistry, physics, and biology topics, and I, you know, it it kind of works and it kind of doesn't work. But I think that within those themes, I've read a lot of popular science books, so I want to sort of summarize the key things from from various books. You know, be it Alice's Alice Roberts' books on the incredible unlikeliness of of being. Um, uh, you know on evolution or um, Steve Weinberg's book on on to explain the world which is on you know the sort of history of physics and and stuff really um uh, to um some of the shorter books which are excellent which i think every science teacher should read like what is chemistry by peter atkins the the um Oxford lecturer um who's written books on you know, textbooks on physical chemistry but what is chemistry is just a concise little tome Carlo Rovelli's book seven brief lessons in physics um, a recent one Paul Nurse um he, his book on um, what is life which is basically explaining biology and these are not so it's it's sort of it, it it's they're written as books they're not written as textbooks and they're not written as really popular science books so it's just trying to sort of you know they're, they're short compendiums of those things that i think a bit of background knowledge into these things a little bit of background knowledge into what a human is you know really um, and, and to think a bit beyond it so it's all the hinterland stuff if you like that people talk about hinterland beyond the core curriculum which i think would be greatly advantageous for a primary school science teacher or a early secondary school science teacher to have carrying around in their in their brains that just most people don't have the time to carry this stuff around their brains because they've not experienced being a scientist for 10 or 20 years, or they've not read all the books, or their main focus is on teaching English or maths, or their main focus is on the pastoral care for the children, or but but it would be greatly enrich their you know the education of the next generation if people had a little bit more base understanding. Of things beyond textbook science but sort of at a lower level a more accessible level than the the you know 200 300 400 page multiple books there are on popular science that you can buy in a bookshop so so that's what I'm kind of working on um and uh I guess my idea so um I haven't had anyone to bounce anyone off anyone to tell me tell me sort of um be quiet. Some Wi-Fi issues this end. Still, Toby, there've been Wi-Fis. Oh, I disappeared in and out. Um, oh, I can see the messages. Oh, there's been Wi-Fis coming coming out. Anyway, can people hear me now? Two new messages. I oh no. Just as so we come to the end. Yes, Lucy can hear me. Sorry, I have I disappeared a lot. Um, I'm sorry. I, I've just been talking, and I haven't anyone. I haven't obviously had anyone to uh, to, to kind of point that out to me. I, I do see these messages, but I haven't been paying attention. Right, everybody. Um, I've gone five minutes over. I'm sorry about the Wi-Fi issues. I've got poor signal again now. I'm I'm not going to play any korg because I haven't got Ed to offset it with the ukulele. Uh, I'd like to thank you all for listening. I apologise about the Wi-Fi issues earlier on. Um, inconclusive waffly, slightly incoherent as, as ever um but I'm glad I've shared that with you I hope it was useful to some of you and and do let me know via the Twitter sphere if you think I'm barking up a wrong tree or I'm onto something um, about this this idea of a bot of a, of a book um Anyway, everyone, but what I will do in tribute to Ed, who's in Devon and in tribute to my Devon farming friends and one for Miss Charlie shout out for Miss Charlie, who I know loves a bit of the Wurzels. I'm going to end um, as I saw my Devon farming friends, uh, when the beacon lighting down in Devon last week, um, Miss Ed, uh, say goodbye with a bit of the Wurzels. Where be your blackbird too? I know where he be. He be up your wurzel tree and I be after he. Now I sees he and he sees I. Bugger if I don't get him. With a curfew big stick, I'll knock me down. Blackbird, I'll have he. How's your father? All right. Bye bye. Back to normal next week with some less diatribe from me. Take care all. No, not that one. This one.